It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 In. 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 Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Criterion Project. And this is the show where we like to talk about um, movies on the Criterion channel. And it's a lot of fun. I'm film critic Rachel Wagner. Conrado is here. Yes, he is. How are you doing, Rachel? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, this is uh, kind of our season finale, right? It's yeah. been, well, we're not really going to take a break, I don't think so. <laughs> but it is uh, our fourth fourth anniversary. It's the end of our fourth season. Yeah. Um, so I guess that makes it our fourth anniversary. Kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Very Hard to fun. believe. <laughs> and it's like a perfect movie for that, I feel like, because it's all about sort of thinking about the ending of things and not that we're ending, but but it's just like very contemplative movie that we're going to be talking about. So. Yeah, that's very true. Um, we are going to be talking about the movie Things to Come. Uh, and for that, we have a couple of very exciting guests. We're very um, excited for this conversation to have them on the show together. They are the editors of a book all about Isabelle Huppert, who is the protagonist or you know the star of the movie we're going to be talking about the name of the book is performative opacity in the work of Isabelle Huppert and we have with us assistant professor of cinema and media arts at Vanderbilt University Iggy Cortez hi Iggy welcome on the show hi thank you for having me and also we have Ian Fleischman associate professor of cinema and media studies at the University of Pennsylvania Ian thank you also so much for being on the show thanks so much happy to be here um, so why don't we just start with you uh, telling us a little bit about this project of yours, um, about Isabelle Huppert and, and you know, um, what people can expect from that. Iggy, do you want to start? You're better at elevator pitches. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yes. Um, so Ian and I have been thinking about uh, putting a volume of scholarly essays on Isabelle Huppert together. Um, for a long time now, partly because we think that um, Isabelle Huppert is sort of essential for thinking about um, contemporary cinema. Uh, she is an actor who has worked with some of the leading filmmakers um, internationally, not just in France, but uh, all over the world. And it also seemed to us that there was some kind of um, excitement around Huppert for the kinds of roles she plays, roles that are often uncompromising, that often explore some of the darker aspects of um, humanity and like social politics, uh, but also that there was something really specific about how she acts. Not just that she's a good actor, right? Not that just she's kind of immersive or captivating, but there's something really kind of specific about the way she's acting that warranted some sort of academic engagement. Uh, so in order to do this, we um, contacted some academics, all of them specializing in, in many different aspects of cinema, uh, to contribute an essay on one specific film um, of Huppert and to really analyze uh, that film from the point of view of her performance. So this mm. is a little bit of a different approach, right? So we're thinking not so much about the director, not so much about the the screenplay, but what would it mean to think about a film if we foregrounded, uh, you know, her acting, her performance as the lens into these films? Mm -hmm. That sounds really interesting. Now, because she's 
you know, French actress, did, did you have to, did you, did you dive into films that you hadn't actually seen of hers before when you uh, started this project? Um, I think we definitely did. Uh, at least for me, I did. Uh, Iggy and I had first come together around this project because we were, we were enthusiastic, but I don't think that either of us probably had the sense of just how vast her corpus is. She's made by some estimates, nearly 150 films um, over the course of her career. Uh, and so when we started to talk about our, our you know, mutual love of all things Isabelle Huppert, uh, I think we found that sometimes the references were more varied uh, than, than you would expect. Um, I'd also say that this film uh, that we're talking about today, I think in a lot of ways probably galvanized the project um, in that it was in theaters as we started to talk about it um, or as we started to talk about the book. Uh, and I think was one of the films that started to get her not her first recognition um, uh, in the United States, uh, but definitely a belated recognition. And there was a lot of buzz around her during that um, mm -hmm. uh, award season. Uh, so I think that this film, uh, for instance, which I watched with this project in mind, I think it was one of the first new new Uper films that I sat down to um, thinking I'm about to edit a book on her. Um, yeah. So this has a, this has a sort of a place in that origin story. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. great. That's a great, um, that's a great coincidence. And yeah, and this is all a great coincidence because we, uh, part of why we picked this movie was because there's this new collection on the, on the Criterion channel that's starring Isabelle Huppert and it has, um, I don't know, about 20 or so of her movies. And so we thought it was a great, um, you know, time to cover this movie that both Rachel and I really love. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we learned that that there were people out there who were, you know, editing a collection of about all about her together, we thought this would be uh, perfect to have you guys on the show. So we're very excited. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about things to come. Of course, it's the main dish of this episode. But um, Rachel, what do we have to do first? Yeah, so we always start by talking about something we've been watching on the Criterion channel or criterion like or just whatever we want to talk about um so conrado what about you what have you been watching oh let me see what do i have i been watching let me look through what i've seen recently so i went to see a movie and um, that was playing on the big screen here in new york which is um ernst lubitsch's trouble in paradise which is also yeah, available um... on the criterion channel on the um, I think it's called the Precode Hollywood or Precode Paramount collection, you know, and um, I watched it on the channel first. It was pretty late at night, so I was a little bit sleepy. I was very engaged with the movie and I was having a good time, but I was kind of falling in and out of sleep. Um, but I thought, OK, well, you know, I had a good time, but maybe not the ideal conditions. But then I, I saw a couple of days later that it was going to be playing in New York in a movie theater. And I said, oh, well, this is a great opportunity because i already know i like this movie but this time i watch it you know awake for the whole yeah. time <laughs> and it was and it's great it's a it's kind of a i don't think it's necessarily a screwball comedy it's kind of a little earlier than that but it is definitely you know what they call pre-code movie so it's a little bit you know racy in its in its depiction of this couple of um con artists who fall in love in venice and then they move to Paris, where the the guy who's played by Herbert Marshall, he's going to try to weasel himself into the life of uh, an kind of like a millionaire widower who owns a, a very important business in Paris. And 
her name is Marie, Madame Collet, and she's played by Kay Francis, and he's going to seduce her and take her money with his lover, who is played by Marion Hopkins, and then, of course, they end up falling in love, and there's this kind of, like, fun love triangle that is not very sentimental, I don't think, but more so kind of just passionate and sexy and, and funny, and they're all very clever. It's full of very um great funny lines you know like Ernst Lubitsch tends to have in his movies and I and I had a really good time um have you seen this one Rachel because we know that we both are big fans of classic romantic comedies yeah. and I think you might be a fan of this one if you haven't I seen haven't it. but yeah it looks like totally my cup of tea so I'm definitely gonna have to check it out it's also the basis for I know that you like to ask about about remake ideas this one was remade as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Steve Martin and um Oh, I'm blanking on his oh, name. Oh, interesting. I like uh, that movie. And then again is The Hustle with Anne Hathaway and uh, Rebel Wilson. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that came and out Broadway a couple musical. years ago. Yeah, that too. They're... Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, there's Judy Rotten Scoundrels. Probably musical. Interesting. Okay, I'll definitely have to check it out. That sounds fun. Uh, what about you, Ian? Have you been watching anything uh, recently that you want to talk about? So I've been out of the country and have not had access to my Criterion Channel login, uh, but looked it up today, wondering what what would have been the last Criterion film that I saw and noticed the the Uper retrospective. Um, mm-hmm. So I was excited about that. My I was um, initially drawn to a film that I think Iggy knows a lot better than I do, but I was just editing um, editing editing uh, Karen Redrow's chapter in our book on um, Claude Chabrol's film La Ceremonie. Uh, uh, yeah. stars Isabelle Huppert as a sort of um, ultimately a murderous uh, postal worker. Uh, and I was uh, thinking about that film um, in this context. It also sort of relates to, I think, things to come in that uh, one of Karen's points about it is that it's it's one of um, Huppert's more comedic roles. Uh, and that's mm. a register of hers that's often underutilized. Uh, there it's a very sort of violent, eruptive uh, comedy, whereas here it's a sort of subtle um uh comedy uh in moments of things to come that are uh either just sort of understated um or mute almost to the point of of sarcasm right um, but i so i was l- looking at that and thinking of humor across these two roles yeah and isn't la i've seen la ceremony i think and uh isn't that also a story about well i mean i'm connecting it with trouble in paradise rather than things to come but mm-hmm. about her and and another woman kind of like weaseling also themselves into a rich family house or something like that. One is the maid, so she's been hired. I don't know if you can count that as okay. As yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and but Uper kind of like starts. Doubled. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She sort of in, um, inserts herself increasingly into the situation until it it reaches it reaches its its um, violent climax. Yeah, I remember that being a very intriguing movie. I should watch it again because I don't remember too much about it. But um, yeah, now that's on the channel, maybe it'll be the chance for that. Well, what about you, Iggy? Have you, you uh, watched anything you want to talk about recently? Yeah, I am good to talk about a film uh, that is maybe, it's, it's not on the Criterion channel, just uh, came out in theaters, but it's, I think, related both to Criterion-like sensibilities as well as repair in some ways. Um, and it's Pacifiction, uh, which is uh, directed by uh, Albert Serra. And um, it stars uh, Benoit Majumel, who um, co-starred with Isabelle Huppert in uh, The Piano Teacher. Um mm. And what's really interesting about this film uh, is that Mel looks so different in this film than he did in The Piano Teacher, which is not to like disparage the passing of time that happened 
uh, to all of them. <laughs> I think that um, whereas in the piano teacher, he was like young and hunky and like almost uh, seemed like uh, a knight in shining armor, you know, until like disaster strikes. In this film, I think we're absolutely supposed to get a sense of his aging. He's become a you know, more corpulent. There's something about him that seems um, that he's like overripe fruit or something like that. And and again, that's not to to disparage him in any ways, but I think they're really playing that up. Um, and he won the Cesar for this um, for this role, the kind of French Oscars. And it's a really dreamy film. There's it's about uh, a kind of high commissioner of you know the French government who uh, lives in uh, Tahiti, and rumors start to circulate that uh, France wants to resume uh, nuclear testing around uh, the island. But this film is just weird. It's queer. It's more of a vibe. It's more of like three hours of like strange. Um, like Lynchian atmosphere. And um, I can absolutely, um, Albert Serra is a very kind of eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic director. And he's the kind of guy who I could imagine working with Huppert in some, some mm-hmm. future, some future way. Yeah. Now, um, you know, Eagle, not, not Eagle. What are, what's the version for listening for Eagle eyed? Like, I don't know, like, Listeners who have a good memory, I guess is what I'm trying to say, will remember in a New York Film Festival episode that we did a couple months ago, we did talk about this movie, which I watched, and I wasn't a big fan of, <laughs> to be honest. But um, I know that a lot of people really love this movie, including you, of course, Iggy. And oh, um, <laughs> and I think the, the pitch that you're giving our audience is probably the way to approach it if you're going to have a great time with that movie. Because I definitely agree that the... Yeah, it's definitely a vibe. And then maybe because of that, either you plug into the vibe or you don't, you know, like, and I guess that night at, at the New York Film Festival, I was not g- feeling it. Um, but I will What's also... What's it called s- again? It's called Pacifiction. Okay. Yeah, um, a of Pacific and fiction, which mm-hmm. uh, I only got, like, after I <laughs> read, read the film. I was calling it Pacification for, for like, you know, days before seeing it, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it is a very acclaimed movie, and uh, yeah, people who who are you know listened to Iggy's pitch and and felt interested by it should definitely check it out because I think yeah. even though I didn't particularly like it, I do think that it's a very interesting kind of movie of the newer ones that have come out in recent mm-hmm. years. Um, Rachel, I don't know if it'll be a movie for you. <laughs> it'll rank pretty high in the pretentiousness scale, okay. that's for sure. And I don't know. If, <laughs> I know that's going to be your cup of tea, but it it is a very interesting movie. That's for sure. And also I had no idea that that's the same guy from the piano teacher. I have seen that movie too. And I didn't recognize him at all. Of course, I'm not a huge follower of French cinema, so I didn't know him by name or didn't remember his name. So I am shocked to learn that it's the same person Um, Mm. in a good way. Also for him, like, you know, a great um, range of acting abilities for this guy, Benoit Majumel. Um, all right, Rachel, how about you? Yeah. Do you have something? Yeah, so I am doing classic musical month on my channel. Uh, and so I just watched this week, I watched Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, it is just such a great adaptation. I actually saw this stage production of it as well that I reviewed for Utah Theater Bloggers Association. Uh, at Regalo Theater here, and they did an incredible job. And the 
movie is pretty much word for word. I mean, they changed almost nothing. Uh, So uh, if you like the movie, you'd like the show. If you like the show, you'd like the movie. Uh, But, uh, but I don't know. It's just such a lovely musical movie. I love it. I mean, the, the, the songs are great. I think it's like very approachable for people that maybe don't like musicals that much because a lot of the a lot of the songs are sort of more sing talking or more sort of natural of when you might sing mm-hmm. in a regular you know celebrating or or you know singing a hymn basically with a sabbath things like that uh but uh but you know just about tevia and his daughters and and uh it's a great great movie great performance from topol who just passed away recently um, so I'm going to have my review, but it was a lot of fun. It's a long movie, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Mm. I have never seen it, actually. Um, how about you guys? Ian, have you seen it? I have not, no. How about you, Iggy? Oh, no, I haven't seen no, it. Oh, it's okay. so good. Y'all got to check it out. <laughs> so. All right. Fiddler on uh, the roof. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, over on my channel, uh, we did Carousel for the first week, which is more problematic, but it was it was interesting to revisit. And uh, and then this week will be Fiddler on the Roof. So, mm-hmm. yeah, all right, yeah, yeah. So, well, let's dive into uh, things to come. Uh, Conrado, why don't you give our little um, summary? Sure. So, things to come is a movie from the year 2016. Uh, it's directed by Mia Hansen Love, who also wrote the screenplay, and it stars Isabel Luper as a woman who is a philosophy teacher i think at a high school i'm not i'm not entirely sure if it's a high school or a college it seems like a high school to me but um she is a philosophy teacher who is just you know we follow her through uh basically a year in her life when there's quite a bit of change her her husband um she finds out that her husband is cheating on her or or has found a lover rather and and has decided to end the marriage so she's getting divorced her children are out of the house they have grown up she also has to deal with her mother who is kind of like um very severely depressed so she so it's kind of like a thing that she needs to really take care of her she like calls her all the time saying that she's feeling very bad and she needs her help and things like that then her mother also has a cat that you know she also has to start taking care of that because the mom kind of like starts getting worse and uh amongst all of this she also is dealing with first of all the fact that there is a protest student protest going on that is interfering with her ability to teach her classes in the school the way that she would normally do so because a lot of the students are I think it's protesting the the retirement age or something like that that has gone up. And so the classes have been uh, disrupted by that. And also she's reconnecting with a former student of hers who is uh, also a philosopher and who regards her as a sort of mentor and who is has written some books for her um, and is also thinking of, you know, uh leading a very radical life that will will live up to his kind of leftist uh uh ideals and and so she is challenged a little bit by that as well um and i think that's kind of you know it's it's a movie with you know makes it sound like a lot is happening and i guess a lot is because you know you follow her through a whole year and a lot of things change in her life but it's also a very contemplative movie a movie that's very you know sort of like just a character study that wants to really spend some time with this woman and 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 put us in her mind of, of what she's thinking 
obviously she's a philosopher so she thinks a lot and she she asks herself questions about life and about change and about all of these things politics and you know um religion as the movie goes on and we kind of just follow in that is it does it sound uh good to you rachel yeah i think that's a good good description i thought it was a college i don't know if yeah it, high school it's, thing so it's a french high school it is a high school okay i'm yeah. i missed that but uh but i definitely i connected with her character on a lot of levels um but uh i i was actually a political philosophy that was kind of my um uh i was political science was my major but then i took the polit- political philosophy track in college and i love reading philosophy and and uh and i just really related to her character and uh and i we'll talk about the funeral but i think that whole speech she gives at the funeral is just absolutely beautiful uh and there's just so many touching moments in this uh in this film um uh iggy what do you think about the film overall and how do you think it connects with her overall work I think it's um, just a, a glorious film. I think it's it's absolutely superb, and I think you know Conrad, you did a, such a great job, you know, describing its its multiple threads. I think uh, its approach to time is really interesting, and just to think about the title, "Things to Come," I think that one of the ways in which we think about our lives, mostly because of you know conventions that we get from. Uh, narrative cinema is that when the future happens, it will be completely manifest uh, in front of us and that it there'll be a kind of clear demarcation between the, the present, the past uh, and the future. But what mm. this film does so beautifully, I think it, it talks about these multiple threads in our lives and um, the kind of accretion, like that our lives are shaped not by, you know, one climax after another, but it's the slow accretion of different uh, different events that are happening diffusely, operating diffusely around each other. Um, and there are things that uh, might become uh, threads that we sustain into the future, and there are things that are slowly petering out or dying dying out. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film, and um, I think it, it fits within who pairs work in that. Uh, who pairs an actor, an actress who's really known for this quality of opacity that gives our book uh, its title, which is to say that there's something enigmatic about her screen presence, even as she's being very precise and conveying a spe- specific emotion. There's also a sense that we have as spectators that we fully don't know everything about her like we we fully don't know everything that she's um she's thinking and i think mm-hmm. this is brilliant in relation to this movie because there's the sense too that this uh philosophy professor who has always in some ways uh been a master in the in the classroom over over her life is navigating situations that she doesn't fully comprehend precisely. And that's a very interesting and still pretty unique approach to the question of character. When we think about actors, they tend to kind of come up with an exhaustive list of of motivations and and, and reasons and kind of psychological backstories. But Mm -hmm. she's compelling as somebody who's inhabiting uh, a person who is also driven by uncertainty and i think she really materializes that in a very compelling way in this film 
I think well, that's a, a, oh, sorry, sorry, Rachel. I was going to say that I think that's a great description of it. And, and also because I've been struggling to kind of find a way to describe my experience watching the movie and her performance because it's so central to the movie um, because it is in some ways it's so simple and it's so such, you know, recognizable kind of mundane scenes that are happening. But at the same time, there is something unknowable about them. And I think that's what struck me really a lot the first time that I saw it when it came out. Um, I think Ian, you were talking about before how this was kind of like a very important year for her career because she got a lot of attention in America. She also had the movie L that year that she got nominated for an Oscar for, which is this Paul Verhoeven movie that is quite different in tone from this. And it's very, you know, she's playing this woman who is very enigmatic and she's reacting to a sexual assault in a way that is very unexpected. And I watched that movie and I was like, who is this woman? I don't understand. She seemed like some pillar of opacity, you know, so to quote both of you guys and, and your book. Um, and then I watched this movie, Things to Come, and suddenly she was a person and she was like a, a person that felt so close to, you know, what I know of life to be. And I was like, she's like my mom or something, you know, and I'm like, she seemed like such a regular daily life person and such a otherworldly person at the same time. And I was really fascinated by that. And I think that carries me through the movie in a way that is very, very um, effective and very and by the end it's it's very touching to me as well sorry Rachel continue please no you're fine um yeah I mean it's a movie about happiness because if you think about it the uh everything that she thought made her happy is taken away from her uh her uh her husband leaves her her uh books aren't getting renewed in the same way mm. they're getting uh changed uh and so she, her career is frustrating her her mother passes away in the in the in the story uh in the course of the movie yeah. um she can't she loses, teach yeah and she even you know she loses this vacation home that was her husband's all these different things are taken away from her and she has to figure out okay what does happiness mean to me in this new situation when everything i thought made me happy is taken away and that's when she quotes the robespierre um, I mean, the Rousseau, that's when she quotes the Rousseau um, that about uh, we can do without happiness. We can expect to achieve it if happiness fails to come. Hope persists. And uh, and I think uh, that um, that's just a very, I think, moving journey because we all have those we all have those times in life where it seems like, boy, uh, God is is spending a lot of extra time on me right now like this is a lot <laughs> of challenges going on in my life um and uh, it's interesting when you come out of those experiences how how you change as, as a as a human and i think that's what you see with her mm-hmm. she's found like a new freedom yeah uh, in in all of this and even then oh go ahead ian please oh i just gonna say i think this is a gentler role for her um and a, and a more relatable role i was noticing watching it again um in advance of, the, of, of this discussion that she um She's not really wearing makeup um, through a lot mm. of time. You see her age um, and her face a lot more than uh, you do in, in, in a lot of other roles where she's she's more inscrutable. And I think, you know, I really loved um, Iggy's description of the movie, which pulls out um, all of the ways in which it just sort of dwells uh, with her character um, and and with a person and uh, and reflecting on the, the title which is sort of poetically rendered in English as things to come, and in French is just l'avenir, which is the which is the future, which literally means what is to come. Um, 
But here, I think that it's less of looking forward to, you know, there are moments of hope. There's the, you know, the infant at the, at the end that implies mm-hmm. a futurity um, to come. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways, the future is a better uh, description of it because it's, it's the moment that she's in now. You know, it is this moment of um, there are all of these multiple tragedies that are that all happen in a sort of muted way. Um, and what when I divested myself of all of these things, my husband, my career ambitions, you know, when my mother is gone, uh, when she gets rid of the cat, as she eventually does, um, what is it that's left? And that's the future. Um, mm. And I see it more as being a movie about being already there um, and having to live in that moment um, than sort of looking forward to what will be the next you know great change or you know will i will i find love again or you know will i adapt another pet yeah yeah that's a very great point and i do think that that's something that really uh spoke to me about the movie this time or really hit me um just the idea of um looking you know being in the future like you're saying just like take when something happens and all of a sudden you have to consider the fact that once upon a time, you imagined the moment that you're in and now you're in the moment and the moment has passed. And and what yeah. what occurred is what's been, you know, that's the record of your life and there's no changing that. And it's just a very strange feeling. And and I think, you know, also going back to what Rachel was saying about her looking forward and trying to move on from that and looking back at the same time. And I think the movie does, I really love the ending of the movie. It, it really hits me very emotionally very much so both times um that i've seen it and i think because it really gets at something about that in uncertainty in in that in that middle you know like rachel was saying she finds a way of to find her freedom but the answer is not completely it's not explicit you know because in life the answer is also not explicit it's just this kind of moment of of hope like in the rousseau quotes but also of uncertainty and um, and I think it gets at something very profound in a very unassuming way, which I really love when a movie is able to do that. Yeah, and I love the the scene at the, the eulogy at the funeral. I think it is so beautiful. Uh, one of the most like touching depictions or descriptions of of uh, how an agnostic or atheist could have hope in in uh, in the future I, I just thought it was so beautiful she says this is what i see and what troubles me i look on all sides and see only darkness everywhere nature presents to me nothing but doubt and concern if i saw nothing there which revealed a d- divinity i would come to a negative conclusion if i saw everywhere the signs of a creator i would remain peacefully in faith but seeing too much to deny and too little to be sure I'm in a state to be pitied. I have I have a hundred times wished that if a God maintains nature, it should testify to him unequivocally. If the sayings of nature gives are deceptive, he should suppress them fully. Nature should say everything or nothing. So I see which cause to so I could see which cause to follow. But in my present state, ignorant of what I am or what I must do, I know neither my condition nor my duty. My heart inclines to know where is the true good in order to follow it. Nothing would be too dear to me for eternity. Mm. I, I just think that captures that experience so beautifully and uh, it's such an, a moving moment in the um Yeah. In the film. 
And that is from uh, what philosopher is that she's reading from, I think, Pascal, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do the editors of the book know this information <laughs> that, that we simpletons maybe are not? Um, so where Would Ian you... or Iggy, do, do you guys know that? I can't help you out there. I don't, I, I, you know, I was, I was thinking as you were reading that I, I have not any particularly distinct memory of that, of that scene. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure I think it's, it's from Pascal, but Rachel, why don't you speak to us a little bit about what speaks to you so much about that moment? I just felt like it was very emotionally true, uh, of the character and, uh, and I don't know, I, I think there can be, um, this coldness associated with people not of faith sometimes and that it just made me see her perspective in a whole new way there was just I don't know I just thought it's so beautifully described uh her character and what she was going through mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting also because uh, you know it's the funeral for her mother who was according to her a believer and they are at a church uh or well it's after the yeah. church right it's at the funeral but yeah but they are giving her a religious burial and this person who is not religious has decided to quote this from a philosopher who who was yeah. struggling with that as well you know with christianity so it's very it's very interesting. It reminds me yeah. of how our, you know, former guest and good friend of the podcast, Nick Davis, uh, described this movie as a Nancy Myers movie written by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which I think is a great <laughs> uh, way to describe it. It's terrific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Ian, I don't know if we got your general thoughts on the movie. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? I find it super compelling. It's not necessarily my my style of of cinema as i said it's very patient it's very delicate um i know that um this is both a film and a director that that iggy really loves uh and so i have the utmost respect for it but i think out of the uh, mia hansen love uh, films that i've seen um uh this is this is my favorite it feels the most mat mature um mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways i like your description of it and thinking of you know nick davis's um uh quip which which i think is, is is spot on um your initial description of the plot of the film conrado i think um uh really helps situate it and and what's different about it than from uh, say a weepier or melodrama mm. uh, and that i seem to remember that when the film came out um when people would describe it it was she finds out her husband is cheating and leaving her and <laughs> that was sort of it and then if it had different details you know like the loss of the mother um, uh, they were sort of secondary to that plot. And that's not really the plot of the film. Watching again, it becomes very clear that that's just one um, in a string of things that happens. Uh, and although they're all, you know, decisive, dramatic life events, I think it does it sort of quietly, um, you know, where these are just sort of the daily tragedies that we go through um, as people, you know, uh, as people of a certain age, uh, maybe mm -hmm. because I think it's a sort of generational looking forward to, um, uh, you know, middle age uh, from a, a younger director uh, going on there. But I but I, I like the, the sort of patience and the slowness uh, of the film in a way that that sometimes doesn't really resonate with me. Yeah, I do. I love that description from Nick because it just 
makes me, you know, contextualize the film in a very, like, you know, this is the, a very similar setup to a movie like that Julia Roberts movie. What's the Eat, Pray, Love or something, you know, where she gets mm-hmm. divorced and then she has these adventures. Um, it's kind of similar in theory, but in practice, it's completely different. And so that, that makes it so, you know, such a specific way that the director and, and is trying to go for in this movie. Yeah, well, especially when she sees her husband with his uh, mistress oh, the, or whatever yeah. on the bus. Like, that's very, that feels very Nancy Myers. It's a great moment. I, <laughs> yeah. But I like the way that that's edited together, for instance. So you see her crying. I think it's about the loss of her mother. She just found out that her mother has died. Am I right? Yes. And yeah. she's sort of sweeping on the bus. And, and the, the sobbing grows from something subtle to something that she can't really hide anymore. Uh, and then she sees her husband looking ridiculous with his with his younger lover and starts to laugh. But rather than fully tipping over into the comedic, it's held just long enough uh, before mm-hmm. it cuts that we're invited in to sort of laugh with her and to appreciate that humor, but that we don't have to ask, you know, sort of the title of the film, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold it long enough that we think if she can start crying again, does this become worse? Is, there, is she going to make a scene um, it just sort of then moves on to the to the next moment and, and is a very sort of welcome bit of, of comic relief. Yeah, and that question of what comes next is is a question that is asked throughout the whole movie, even towards the end when there is like a one year gap and we are like flash forward to one year later. It's just more of the same in a way. Things are just continuing to happen, like you know, and and I like that a lot as well. That the realism of how long it takes to think of these things, how long it takes to like figure continue after so many things have changed and you know i don't know the patience mm-hmm. of it like we were saying before yeah and i also i'm sorry so i think this question of like the things to come and things changing and it's also related to uh the point you were making um, earlier rachel about you know this really touching moment in which she turns to philosophy um in lieu of uh you know because she's she's an atheist and i think in some like even though this movie is about things to come and it is about like things changing, it's also about like the past returning in ways that we do not foresee uh, because it's also like, yes, like there are aspects of her professional career that are changing in ways that kind of bother her. But in moments of precarity, she actually turns to like her philosophical training, her philosophical sensibility um, to give her, you know, some sort of sustenance and coherence in a moment of, of devastation. And one of the things that I think this film is doing is also kind of leading us uh, away from thinking that the, the, the things in life that will save us are these, you know, heroic gestures or these like absolutely tangible institutions like, a husband, a career, uh, you know, uh, a, you know, a marriage. It's actually these kind of more diffused, like sensibilities that we acquire um, through a lifetime, really. That in moments of uh, feeling precarious or feeling vulnerable, uh, that's what she turns to in order um, to give her a sense of comfort um, in a period of absolute like dispossession um, and devastation. And I think mm-hmm. that's also I I always think about this film um in companion like alongside Mia Hansen's other great film which I think is Eden um mm. and I think that's have you both seen that film uh, yeah, I, I have mean... I have seen it um and that's it I'm very interested in what you have to say because I this things to come is the only Mia Hansen love film that I truly love and every everything else I'm kind of 
and the fence about. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about Eden. Oh, I mean, I love Eden. I think Eden and um, and this film, I think of them together because Eden is a film that is is not about a philosophy of professor. It's about a mm-hmm. kind of aspiring DJ, right? Who's career mm-hmm. rises very dramatically and then like really just peters out. It has that same kind of um, non-linear diffuse events, but in so many ways um, that is a film about somebody who, when he starts to kind of fail, he hasn't built up any other sort of alternatives, right? It's not so much, we get the sense that's what's tragic for him is not so much that he has lost his career is that he has lost something, an object, uh, you know, a um, an activity that gives him a sense of coherence, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. In some ways for both characters, it's not so much, I think, happiness that they long for. It's they're trying to find something that gives them a sense of coherence. And yeah. um, end of that movie, Eden, like, you know, it, it, the past resurfaces again unexpectedly in which he turns to like a talent for for writing, which may or may not add to something, but it does give him, you know, shape, um, you know, as he's sort of drifting along um, um, aimlessly. And I think that's, you know, the beauty of her work is that, you know, past remnants that we thought we had, you know, said goodbye to conclusively like return and resurface in unexpected ways to give us that sense of coherence. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And that's also so such, I don't know, this movie just speaks to me in so many different levels. I really love it. And and the more I think about it, the more I remember all these different small scenes or scenes that seem small at the time. And then I, they just linger with me like days later. And I'm just keep thinking like, you know, the really like the scene where, where she talks with her student, with her former student, and he, he confronts her about like her her politics and her bourgeois lifestyle compared to him, and they have this very interesting conversation that is loaded and, and a little bit like aggressive, but also very realistic in the way that it just kind of peters out. Nobody wins the conversation. Nobody yells at each other. There's no, you know, it's just like this exchange of ideas that's like a little bit uncomfortable, and but you know. And then it just lingers with them for the rest of the movie in an interesting way. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. really into it. But, um, Rachel, well, I think we, we might yeah, have to go into talk, questions. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about our questions. The first one is what makes this criterion worthy? And, uh, and so, Ian, what about you? What do you think makes this criterion worthy? Well, I mean, I obviously have a self serving interest here, but I'd say Isabelle Pau. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, you know, if you look on, as I said, when I logged in, maybe it's just that Google knows my, um, uh, you know, knows what I'm, what I'm into. But, uh, the first thing that came up when I, when I looked at the Criterion channel this morning was the Isabelle uh, retrospective. So I think <laughs> she fits it into, you know, that you could build up a corpus of Criterion films and, and they have, you know, 25 films, so a pretty small sampling. Um, but based just on her work, uh, I think also, I was reminded as I was watching this of a line from, I think it's uh, Mia Hansen Lowe's third film uh, in French. It's Amour Jeunesse. I think in English, um, it is Goodbye to First Love. Mm. Uh, but the couple is coming out of uh, the young couple. I mean, they still look very young, uh, but they're supposed to be like twenty years later. And there's nothing done to sort of make them <laughs> make them look older. But they're um, they're walking out of a movie theater, and she's saying that she's loved the film, uh, and he's saying. Uh, that he found it far too French um, is the way that <laughs> a lot of dialogue that goes nowhere. I think he says that there's an open ending, that it seems to be meandering, that there aren't really any events. 
Um, this is obviously a meta, uh, meta commentary uh, on the part of the director, uh, you know, about certain reactions or, or potential reactions uh, to our own films. Uh, but I think that that too sort of situates them um, within certain expectations um, of, you know, a European slow cinema, um, art cinema uh, that Criterion um, could cater to as well. And I think the director's background, you know, the people that she's that she's worked with in the past, her um, uh, her reviewing for Cahiers de Cinema, all of that. I think this is a very a very fitting Criterion film. Mm. I should watch that movie because I've had that reaction many times in my lifetime. <laughs> it's too French. <laughs> uh, what do you think? And what makes it Criterion worthy? Yeah, I think one of the things that kind of I think Ian's absolutely correct, correct that, um, you know, Criterion movies also are in some ways uh, about a certain kind of prestige that has to do with what we might think of as the pedigree of the filmmaker. But on purely aesthetic terms, if there's also something about, you know, a Criterion film that is, at least is meant to sort of push the language of cinema forward in both a very, you know, idiosyncratic but also new way, there's absolutely what everything that we've said about uh, the way that the film deals with the passage of time, its relationship to time is um, neither linear, but nor is it particularly slow. I think it's, it's riveting. It's mm -hmm. uh, happens through ebbs and flows, but it's also such a sensual movie. Every, you know, details as Conrado was talking about, the details are really, there's so much sort of sensory evocativeness. It's a very, very sensual and, and sensory film. And I think it's narrating or it's describing a different relationship that we have to time and to memory, but in, in such a, in such a pleasurable way that, you know, reminds me a lot of like a Romare film, for instance, but through a much different, a much more feminist lens, I would say. Mm -hmm. Definitely, but man, I think there's a lot of there's a lot in the sort of dialogue and and the way that it's edited together that that gave me the same thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which makes our next question the pretentiousness a little bit tricky because it's hard to not want to give a pretty high score for one that involves so much philosophy. As much as I love philosophy, uh, <laughs> to have mm -hmm. whole passages of philosophy recited, you know, things like that, it's pretty pretentious. But I feel like it's also done in a very approachable way. And it's not pretentious in, I normally say something I feel is pretentious is if I have to work really hard to understand it. And I don't think that that's the case with this. Uh, it's not really abstract or, um, or difficult to understand what it's, you know, trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, it's a little bit tricky, but I did give it a seven. That's what I went with. Uh, what about you, Conrado? I think I would probably be around this, maybe a little lower, maybe I'd go like a six or a five, just because I do think that you're getting at something there, Rachel, that this would be a good candidate, in my opinion, f for showing a person who doesn't usually watch kind of like art movies or artsy movies, a movie that's a little bit out of the comfort zone that they might still really respond to and really like, mm -hmm. because... um you know, I, I was joking about the whole like, oh, this movie's too French kind of a thing, which does happen to me every, often. Um, case in point, one of the reasons I really appreciate this movie even more so than I would usually, maybe going back to our previous question, what makes this Criterion movie, is the fact that uh, as much as I have admired Mia Hansen-Love as a director, I've never really connected with any of her movies ex except for this one, which 
really, really connected with me, especially on the second watch. It caught me off guard because I watched it all those years ago. I really liked it. And then I kind of, because I didn't like the other movies, it kind of like diminished in my head. But then watching it again, I was like, oh no, this is a great movie. I really respond to this. It's really emotional to me. Despite the fact that it's these fragments and kind of like a little bit opaque ideas of, of daily life, by the end, it really is emotionally grabbing and 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 you can really connect to it so so that's what i would uh, well this was the pretentious scale question and i'm here i am rambling uh, about about other stuff uh, <laughs> this is my way of saying they're probably like a six okay <laughs> what about you Iggy? what would you give it well before i answer that i should say that i think i love pretentious things so it's kind <laughs> of like, i'm not sure is this a bad thing or is this a good thing well, um, but, you know, I actually think it's it's pretty um, accessible, um, I would say. But again, maybe I'm the wrong person <laughs> to answer this question. I give it a six. I think that there are things that um, would be um, very accessible to people, maybe at different stages of their lives, right? Like mm-hmm. I can imagine like my aunts who maybe don't love art cinema, but I can imagine them like watching this film and getting something out of it. Um, mm-hmm. A way that maybe somebody who is younger like in their you know like a teenager or in their early 20s may find it more opaque than somebody at a different stage in their life uh might but i i think it's i find it very um accessible yes okay what about you ian yeah i gave it the same i had it at about a six or a seven i had the same struggles that you did in trying uh, rachel and trying to 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 situate and that you know, it feels very art housey, sure, but other than a couple of sort of new wave jump cuts and, and dialogue, there's nothing particularly experimental or avant garde about the way that it's put together. So it's not flashy, pretentious on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a pretty banal story that's pretty plainly told, which I think is its, it's, it's great merit. Um, there's a kind of earnest clunkiness sometimes to Hans and Lowe's films that I think can help constitute her, her charm, especially when it's, um, delivered by an actor so capable of, of rich nuances um, and, and subtleties as, as somebody like you, Pat. Where it gets its pretentiousness points, I guess, uh, as you were saying, is from these constant glancing references, uh, there's probably a dozen in the first 10 minutes, to the names of, of, of philosophers. Mm. Uh, and they're scattered throughout, but I, I agree that they don't make it any less accessible because they don't really go beyond... Um, the name dropping. I don't know that they're meant to signal much beyond, uh, you know, a, maybe a certain class marker or distinction. Uh, we're not really getting into any serious debates, even when she's on this, um, uh, you know, intellectual commune um, that go beyond sort of uh, characterization, you know, that a certain mm-hmm. character is closer to communism than another or a certain char- char- character yeah. is more amenable to anarchism uh, than another, but I think that this says more about the personalities of the different people in play um, than, you know, say the politics of the film. Yeah, I don't know how rewarding it would be to to follow up on any of these, you know, give a scholarly reading uh, of this film and its class politics, you know, or its debates, its very timely debates on on, on pension reform, um, you know, through the lens of the Frankfurt School or anything. I think that instead this is a sort of self-aware way of signaling, um, you know, the white bourgeois middle-classness of the kinds of um, uh, characters and scenarios that this director um, is interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, somebody like Horkheimer comes up, there's a reason that we're, we're 
that there's a character writing a book on Horkheimer, not Adorno. You know, it's the name after the ampersand. It's it's just enough um, agitation uh, that you feel like you're getting past what Hans Nov, I think, um, presumes to be a sort of standard classical, um, you know, high school uh, European education. Uh, but not so far into it that, you know, you're comparing, you know, what did Horkheim and Adorno do together? What did they do separately? What did they agree on? What did they what did they not uh, agree Listen, on? I just think that it makes actually I'm going to take another stat. I actually think it makes it less pretentious. It's so lived in. It's so the day to day nonsense of like academics. It's a job like another. But honestly, yeah. like when I you know broke up with my partner years ago, I like was like, did you take my copy of Lauren Berlant's book? You know, that's. The oh, kind yeah. Of- yeah, that's yeah. very relatable. <laughs> Curious, like I can't buy this. I need this. Finish this draft by nine p.m. I mean, it's <laughs> just about you know, it's the same thing as if it was a uh, a film about bakers. These are just like the things that happen because that's her day to day life. It's, yeah. it's it really yeah. evokes the experience. Yeah, that's and true. It's it's important that she's a high school, you know, a lycée teacher, um, and that she's called a professor uh, throughout. That's the word in French, and she's called her a professor in all of the reviews. But the you know the assignments that she's setting are you know, sort of high school level, let's think through, you know, this this little decontextualized quotation of Rousseau. So I agree with you, I think that it's a way of kind of of deflating these these sort of loftier names um, rather than using them to make the film feel deeper. Well, yeah. let's talk about our remakes. Uh, so for me, it, I think it's a tough one to think about remaking because it's such a, it's, you can't imagine any other actress, you can't imagine any other director, Mm-hmm. But what I would do instead of a remake is I would do a sequel. I think I would be interested to hear what to see what's happening to her seven years later, uh, what's going on with her life. And uh, so that's more what I would suggest as opposed to a remake. Mm. Yeah, I think I was going to go in a very similar direction. I mean, also the fact that it's such a recent movie makes it hard, right? So Mm -hmm. I think sequel is the obvious way. And I would be interested because this character is very interesting to me. And, and, and you like we were talking about so many rich relationships have been set up in this movie regarding all the other characters around her. Um, because the other option that I could think of was like an American remake, and that just sounds like a nightmare to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think that would be any good. Unless the only good thing about that would be people that it would introduce the movie to more people. But mm, yeah, sure. I think feel like it almost always backfires, even if you have the same director uh, directing the American version. Mm-hmm. It's just almost never. Yeah, I do want to hear what our guests have to say, but I also have a a slightly alternate question that I think will be interesting to ask as well regarding this. But let's hear Iggy and uh, Ian's pitches first. Um, So I'll go first. I was thinking about this question. Essentially, it's like, what if they did an American remake? How could you make it not uh, disastrous? And I really stuck with it in terms of, 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 of Huppert, who is a kind of actress who is similar to Huppert and I would like to see in a similar role. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two answers that come to mind. Perhaps the more uh, predictable one is is Glenn Close. She's been searching for that Oscar, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, the great thing about Glenn Close is that she was playing similar characters who are not likeable, likeable quote-unquote, in the conventional sense. She made the, um, you know, in her, you know, 
career, she made monstrous femininity something captivating, even sexy, uh, compelling, right? And I think there are kind of analogies that she she, you know, she's been drawn to these, um, you know, darker, darker characters, particularly earlier in her career. And I'd love to see her um, play something, you know, with kind of fugitive shifts. But she's also a really precise actor. So I yeah. think she'd be great in something like this. Um, the other um, actor who's the same age as um, Isabel Huppert and I think is sublime is like Alfred Woodard. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Like mm. kind of. Um, you know, the way in which just a close-up of her staring blankly actually suggests so many registers of, like, thinking. Uh, She's a great actor who um, really makes uh, thinking into a cinematic uh, spectacle. So I would love to see both of those actresses in in similar roles to this one. Great. Yeah, I think I, sh- I I had trouble with the question because I was, I was also thinking, well, what would an American remake um, be like? And I think it, for one, it would be a lot more dramatic. But I was I was struggling with the same question of what what actor could carry this role in the same way that that Yupa, um has done here. I was actually thinking because I, I was I was um, maybe a bit more adventurously uh, reflecting on the fact that this came out as at the same moment as L. And I'm remembering, if you remember this better, but in um in Eden they have a discussion of showgirls, right? Somebody puts it on, and there's a there's a debate over whether uh, Paul Verhoeven's sh- Showgirls is a masterpiece or is, or as bad as it seems on its face. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I was thinking of those in conjunction. Another film that came out roughly around the same time, I believe, is uh, Neil Jordan's Greta. Uh, so uh, yeah. rather than than think too seriously about it, I was wondering how you could um, have this role suddenly tip into something. Uh, you know, more violent, more maybe more typically you pair, um, uh, more mm. exciting. I, I like the idea that throughout <laughs> Natalie, our sort of unassuming um, philosophy professor at a high school um, is, uh, you know, secretly a serial killer or snaps and kills her <laughs> husband or burns down the commune right. or, or whatever <laughs> it might be. Starts that's, with the murdering of the cat, probably. So you're suggesting basically a multiverse, is that correct? I, 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 that and you pair a multiverse, I'm, I'm, I'm there for it. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like the American remake would go in that direction, I think, at some point or another. Um, but yeah, I okay. actually liked Greta. I feel like I was one of the few that I, I enjoyed it. So much fun. I gave it an 8 out of 10. <laughs> It's oh, yeah, it was great. It's fun. I, I, it's campy. It's, yeah. it's classy. It's wonderful. I liked it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, um, Carado, do you want to talk about what we're doing next? Or are you unsure? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about what we're doing next. Uh, next up, we're going to be looking at the movie The Spirit of the Beehive. It's a Spanish movie from the 70s. And the reason why I wanted to catch up with it is because I've heard a lot of great things about it, but I've never seen it. And I know that its director, Victor Erice, who is a director who... Uh, hasn't made a movie in many decades, so it's and he's have he has a new movie coming out, or at least there's rumors that the movie will be coming out sometime this year, and that has me excited, um, because he's a director I heard a, a lot about, and you know, it seems like great time as any to catch up with his one of his most famous movies, um, so yeah, Spirit of the Beehive for next time. All right, very good. Well, thank you so much, Iggy and Ian, for talking with us. This was such a great time. And uh, why don't you share how people can find the 
find the book, follow you on socials, all that stuff. Uh, we, you want to go eggy? Yeah. Um, so the book is available for pre-order from Edinburgh University Press. Um, and you can find that just by um, looking at uh, Edinburgh University Press's uh, website. Great. We'll have that link in the description so people can do that. Uh, but are, are you both on social media, Twitter or anything like that? Yes, um, you can find me on, on Twitter. My name is probably easiest or it's at Monsieur Laser, as in reader, L-E-S-E-R. Mm, good. Dumb name, but, you know, you struggle with <laughs> it. It's good. And Iggy, what about you? I am not. I, I, okay. I like, like Hooper. I like to keep my distance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't blame you. Don't blame you. Um, all right. Conrado, how can people find you? They can find me on uh, Twitter at Coco Hits and Why. Um, I'm also on Letterboxd if you search my name. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. And you can follow us at Criterion Pod on Twitter. We'd love to have you there. And you can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all of our social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes. So check that out. And also you can find me at the Hallmarkies podcast where we talk about lots of pretentious films. <laughs> <There. laughs> we have right. a lot of fun. So check that out. And thanks again, uh, Ian and Iggy for coming and talking with us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you all next time uh, about our Spanish film. That'll be super fun. And uh, bye everyone. Thank bye. you. Bye. Thank you.